Hello and welcome to another Copper Show. I'm delighted to say I've got Hayden Locke, the CEO of Marimaka, with me again today. Um, Hayden, how are you? I'm really well, thanks, Marilyn. Yeah, all going along really well. Announced a big partnership and exciting times in the Marimaka house. Good, 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 good. Well, we'll get into that a bit because what I really want to talk about today is just to kind of give a basic primer to the audience on the difference between um, oxides and sulfides in the, the copper space. Um, and uh, at Marimaka, you've, you've effectively been targeting the oxide development and you've hit some uh, in some deeper of the drill holes in your geotech holes, you kind of hit some sulfides. Um, let's just kind of, in, in general terms, um, tell me a little bit about the difference between an oxide and a sulfide, please. Um, well, look, geologically, the, the copper mineralization for deposits always starts as a primary sulfide mineralization. You know, that is how it's emplaced. And what we find is as, you know, as meteoric water surfaces, water from the surface and exposure to air um, hits those minerals, it turns it into and transforms it into the deposit. Um, so that's the most basic premise. Typically, what you find is oxides occur at the surface or near the surface or nearer the surface, it doesn't always have to be right at the surface. It can be uh, undercover, as you see in you know, very large deposits like Estendida. Uh, but in general, they tend to be closer to the surface and are therefore more typically mined as a hit. Um, the biggest difference, though, uh, between these these two minerals is how they're processed and what you eventually do at that. Um, so oxide copper species, many of the oxide copper species, not all of them, are what we call leachable. So they can be dissolved in acid or weak acid uh, and, and the copper ions go into solution. And then the recovery is um, was very different to the recovery if you go through a sulfide process. Because on the sulfide process, uh, they don't leach. Um, and therefore, you have to uh, treat that all differently. You have to grind it up. Uh, liberate the sulfide mineral and then separate that sulfide mineral away from the, the other minerals which aren't sulfides to produce typically a concentrate. Exactly. And, and, the, and the other key difference, and you're, you're exactly right, I was you know, going into lots of detail about the differences in those. The other difference is at the end of our process, we are producing what's called a grade A copper cathode that's very pure copper material. What is produced at the end of a sulfide or, you know, chart pyrite, chart mine um, that uses this flake concentration is a concentrate, which is then shipped to the smelter, uh, which is then, you know, the very high temperatures turned into uh, various stages of product before it gets to the final saleable. You used um, the word chalcosite in there, um, <clears throat> which can go uh, both ways. It can be, it, 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 it's a, so chalcosite is this funny mineral, which um, is is a secondary sulfide. So the the original chalcopyrite can be um, um, weathered through those meteoric and oxidizing waters, but it can reprecipitate as a uh, a different kind of sulfide called chalcosite, which is CUS. And so the the the, the copper content on it is much higher. Um, <clears throat> And, but that can also be leached as well. So, I, I mean, what you also like in an oxide deposit is when you have this um, this enriched cap. Um, do you do you do you have, do you have any chalcosite in um, at Marimaka? Yeah, we do. In the enriched zone at the bottom, uh, in that area where we're getting to the depths where 
uh, we're approaching that salsa horizon. Uh, we have pretty prevalent chalcocide and cobalite. So both leachable secondary sulfide materials. Um, they do have a longer leach cycle and as a result, in our assumptions, we will see a much lower uh, recovery rate for those. But yes, they do leach in, given the quantity and scale. And the fact that it's mixed with oxides, we didn't propose to slope that rather. And just coming back to your point about them being close to surface, effectively, when you've got a mineral deposit which has been uh, emplaced, a copper deposit which is emplaced and then weathered over a long period of time, you can get a, um, the oxides forming down several hundred meters, can't you? I mean, where there's a good fracture permeability, you can get these oxidizing waters down to. Um, I mean, as I said, a, a few hundred meters. And then, of course, it can be covered by later gravels or a later ash fall if you're in a volcanic region. But um, the oxide bodies can be quite large, can they not? Absolutely. On the top of porphyries, they can be many hundreds of millions of tons. Uh, certainly in ISCG deposits like what Maramaca is, well, Maramaca is kind of an ISCG then hybrid. Uh, we also have a very large oxide blanket on top. Um, it's unusual... I would say in areas where, you know, the, you ride into the bedrock relatively early and typically quite hard bedrock, that you see a, you know, five, six hundred metre level of weathering like what we've seen in Barramacca. That is very unusual. We've got a, we've got a 500 metre continuous column of mineralised rock, which is quite unusual, but certainly uh, a couple of hundred metres um, is, is pretty regularly seen on the top of large scale. Isn't that a function though at Marimaka? Because the, as I understand it, it was oxidized in one orientation down to a certain depth, but obviously overcome quite a wide area. And then it was tilted. And is that not what gives the 500 meters of um, supposed depth, but actually it's just kind of a lateral measure that's been kind of rotated around. So you can, now it's deep, but at the time it was um, of a level and has been rotated. Is that what you're referring to? No, not not quite. Although that is certainly uh, part of the reason why, um, it's like a domino effect to, to nowhere as so to. Uh, but the the oxidation profile is really a function of the reason why Maramaca is there. We're still, you know, we're still formulating the final final thesis as to its genesis because it is quite unusual deposit. Um, but it is in place as a result of really really. Uh, really, really pervasive fracturing of the rock. So a huge amount of fracturing through that rock all the way down, you know, several hundred metres surface, which has allowed that uh, surface water to permeate through the pilot. Um, and yes, okay, some of that has been um, exacerbated by that domino effect. You know, it's more a function of using the, an unusually unique deposit in this part of the world is um, that really pervasive fracturing, which is caused by the regional shear forces, um, calling it, causing what we call a dilation result, i.e. an extensional uh, zone between two uh, two rock structures that has expanded that mass and allowed the uh, copper rich. And I guess if you've got a um, some part of kind of rotational transpression on that structure and you've got a brittle rock, it's going to kind of um, exacerbate the fracturing or kind of um, augment the fracturing. Um, one of the challenges of oxide deposits generally, whether you're talking about copper or gold, is that um, they're normally volumetrically small because it's only kind of it's it's they're they're challenged by being close to surface. 
Um, you mentioned that they can be up to you know, several hundred million tons uh, on the top of a big porphyry system. Um, but the amount of production today is very much driven by sulfide. Um, you know, global global copper production is driven by the the um, sulfide minerals. You know, um, but when you're assessing a an oxide deposit, what do you you know? When do you know that you've got enough to uh, kind of say actually we might be able to do a, an oxide standalone project here, uh, or we might just have a little phase one on the oxide and then we're going to go onto the sulfide, or you might just kind of stockpile the oxide to one side and then move on to the sulfide. What can you just kind of describe to me some of the thought process ar around those decision trees? Mm. Yeah, you're right. Eighty-five percent, I think, or maybe even more of the global copper production comes from sulfide deposits and therefore smelting. Although there is a pretty strong push now to move back to <clears throat> back to leaching of trying to leach those primary chalcopyrites, which is kind of uh, you know the holy grail of copper. Um, we'll see if anyone really cracks the nut on that. Uh, we've seen a few technologies that are quite interesting. Um, in terms of project size, yeah, look, oxide projects can be much smaller. Um, it's, I'm not advocating that people should run it and invest in small projects because in mining, like any industrial process, scale is your friend. Uh, in terms of you know amortizing fixed costs, there is a base of fixed costs that needs to be considered for any project that you can't get away from, you know, minimum staffing requirements. And so there is some economy of scale. Uh, but as a general rule, I would be looking at, you know, 30 to 35,000 tonnes of copper production. My low end is, is sort of starting to become quite interesting. Uh, once you hit 50,000 tonnes of copper cathode, you're a globally significant cathode producer. And that is, uh, that is a very nice place to be. <laughs> in terms of mine life, you know, you want to 10 years. So that, Puts you in the range of you know half a million tons of contained copper and upwards, um, and once you get north of a million tons, the game you are global of significant. Sorry, just just all those, those rough sums. You know, ten years producing thirty five thousand or thirty to thirty five thousand tons per annum, um, and you talk about a, a roughly five hundred thousand tons per annum of contained copper. Is that because the the recovery is likely to be seventy odd percent? Is 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 that where you're yeah, look, give or take. Um, it depends really, and this is where we get into some really sort of quite technical areas. The biggest risk on a heat leach copper project, uh, you know, alongside the resource is the metallurgical test work and understanding how it will fall on the heat, understanding variability. And I've spoken to yourself and Matt a lot about de risky mining projects. You know, it is fundamental to do the work, but as a general rule in Chile, uh, copper projects are operating at between 60 and 75, 80% recoveries depending on the mineral species and you know, what's going in and around it and their operating parameters. And one of the attractive things about copper oxide projects is that there's a difference in capex. Um, wh why can you kind of outline the, the key differences in capex between a kind of a sulfide operation and an oxide? What's, what, what is there and what is there not in, in, in across those two um process routes yeah so uh the mining stage is completely the same and then you get to the primary crushing stage which is completely the same um and typically with a with a copper oxide project you will crush to a size of roughly three quarters of an inch and we talk about p80 three quarters of an inch so uh you know what's that about 1.5 centimeters being uh 80 percent 
material and was involved there about uh, mixing my metrics and interior systems. Um, the, the key difference from that step is that typically with a sulfide project, you will need to grind reasonably significant fiber. Uh, and that is you know, really driven by processing uh, phase afterwards, which is typically a, a froth flotation of those sulfide minerals. But you need to make sure that the sulfide minerals are liberated from the um, surrounding bedrock or what we call gang. If they're not liberated properly, the froth will not be strong enough to float the sulfide minerals and you won't get recovery. So the next big piece of CapEx is typically a ball mill. Uh, which is a very large piece of equipment, depending on mine size. Multiple ball mills, if you get up to really big projects like Cobra Panama, you know, I know they have several enormous ball mills in parallel. Um, and, you know, Escondida is obviously enormous. So that's the first big piece of uh, equipment difference. That is a relatively expensive kit. Also very expensive from the power consumption side. So the, the power consumption curve to take a rock the same rock from three quarters of an inch to 75 microns or even finer is an exponential curve. So you're putting in exponentially more power to reduce the size of the microns in those that's uh, going into your um, Then you get into the flotation plant, which is actually a plant. So there are you know big tanks, uh, lots of agitators, lots of mechanical equipment, lots of piping. That's another key difference between heat leach projects. Um, in that a heat leach is just a pile of dirt sitting on, yes, there's civil and earthworks, which you stand up front in terms of capex, but it's much lower cost than having all the steel, piping, electrical instrumentation, monitoring, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and in many cases, you need to have that covered. But you need an irrigation system, don't you, you know, through, through your um, through your heap. But I guess that's not this, it, it's an order of magnitude different, or it's not on the same kind of um, page as the piping and the circuitry and the metal work required for a, um, a flotation circuit. Yeah, the irrigation system on a heat ledge is, looks like a garden, irrig a, a large-scale garden irrigation system. It's just black pipes running across the top of your, depending on the system you use, across the top of your heat ledge and you're running your acid material, uh, your acid leaching liquid through there um, and it percolates through the heap and then you collect it, use, typically using gravity into your Ponds and then pump ideally using gravity into your SXCW. Uh, SXCW is different. Obviously, that's an expensive portion of our, our cost, uh, makes up about 40% of our total capital cost of thereabouts. Um, uh, solvent extraction, electro winning. So, that is the key difference between uh, concentration and, and what we're doing. At the end, so what we have is a leach solution which has copper ions in it, it's pumped into uh, what's called the solvent extraction phase, where we inject or we stir in an organic material, which attracts the copper. Uh, then the copper organic material is washed, and the final product is sent into the SXCW where an electrical current is run. And it's that electrical current that causes the copper to plate and to. And that's the, and that's the electro win. I mean, it's you're you're literally winning the, um, the copper by. Um, stimulating it with um, electricity. Exactly. Um, and that, I always, every time I go around an SXW plant, I always kind of slightly choke on the um, the acid fumes. So, you know, that's an acid, um, what, a key input or a key uh, reagent is is acid in there, isn't it? 
That's right. Sulfuric acid specifically, although you can use some other acids, but sulfuric acid is, is the most commonly used uh, leaching liquid. And where do you buy the acids from generally? I mean, I know, I know that each country has an own kind of um, its own um, acid balance. I've, I, I've done I've, I've done a little bit of work on the acid balances of Namibia and the Congo and Zambia back in the um, in, in a previous life. Um, um, typically, where does the acid come from uh, to, to use in the SXCW process? Well, so acid is primarily, acid supply demand balance is primarily driven by the fertilizer industry, which is, you know, which consumes most of the acid globally, primarily for the development of phosphoric acid. Um, so widely used in fertilizers. Um, and, and that's a real driver for the ups and downs of the acid price. Acid doesn't, is notoriously bad at traveling and at storage. And so you typically want your acid source relatively close to you and uh, you don't want to be storing it too long because it's highly corrosive in that pure form. So um, the biggest sources are natural sulfur burners, which come burn sulfur, um, elemental sulfur to turn it into sulfuric acid. Uh, so large-scale chemical companies to sale in industrial purposes, but also in the, uh, in the copper industry. Um, the other big source is smelting or primary sulfides. So obviously burning, heating, superheating any sulfide ore uh, will create sulfur dioxide, uh, which can then be captured in and it's sulfuric acid. So the biggest sources tend to be smelters and straight up sulfur burners. Obviously anywhere there's a big footprint of copper production is likely to be a very large scale uh, producer of sulfuric acid and Chile is no different. So the vast majority of acid in Chile is kept internally for use in the, in the copper industry. Maybe there's a little bit of export. Most of the acid coming up to our region is from southern There is also a very large scale uh, smelter just south of Antibidasa producing about 800,000 tons a year of sulfuric acid. So there's plenty of sources in Chile. Central Africa, or you know the sort of Zambian copper belt, um, maybe slightly less, but equally where, wherever there's a smelter, there's likely to be. Yeah, yeah. And I've also been to some operations where uh, they had their own acid plants. Um, I've, I've visited some of the uranium operations in um, in Niger, and been, yeah, I've been been to an acid plant. Funnily enough, in um, I think Marin 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 when they were doing the um, high pressure acid leach uh, on the nickel laterites, they also had they were using quite a lot of acid there. Uh, they had huge piles of sulfur that they were converting into um, into acid. Yeah, yeah, I know. There's a, definitely a tipping point in terms of scale where it starts to make sense to buy the elemental sulfur and spend that capex. But a sulfur burner acid plant is a relatively expensive and quite dirty piece of equipment. So uh, if you don't have to build it, avoid it if you can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Uh, just going back to the um, the the sulfide processing route, um, you, we've gone through the, the flotation circuit, and that, as you mentioned, has got lots of kind of piping, and there are roughers and cleaners, and then then presumably that just gets um, filtered and, and packed and dried. Yeah, correct. Dewater, de um, and then you know that wet tailings to the tailings facility, uh, and then you ship out the. The concentrate materials and jetter smelter you've got an agreement with or some percentage of the contained metal barrier. 
and in Chile, there's um, there's some fabulous pipelines, aren't there? Of kind of concentrate pipelines. Can have you any comment on those? I mean, have you got any insight? Yeah, well, I I think uh, concentrate is not pure metal, and so you're not getting so in terms of the value of per ton of material sent, it's not a hundred percent metal value. Which whereas with cathode, you'll send if you send a ton of cathode, it's worth uh, you know what is eight thousand five hundred dollars today. And if you think about the cost of either trucking or training, um, you know, a lower value material can eat into that margin pretty quickly. Um, so transport and logistics is something you have to consider. But I think certainly in Chile, being up in the high Andes, it makes a lot of sense to use gravity and use a large scale what they call slurry pipeline to get the concentrate slurry down to port where it will be exported because it just saves such enormous amount. Uh, costs in terms of transport, but also the uh, capex to well, the transportation infrastructure is significantly cheaper to do a, a pipeline. You know, they're very well used in industrial processes the world over, significantly to use us. And um, they, 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 they send, you know, kind of 60,000 tons per annum or more down these pipes, you know, that, that size diameter, and it comes out like toothpaste. I mean, it flows like toothpaste. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? You know, um, down to the port, and then it's, uh, dried again because it's got to, it has to have a slightly higher moisture moisture content uh to to move through the pipes and then uh it's dried again and then um loaded into ships i mean it's, it's quite a remarkable feat of engineering um i guess that um so with the reduced capex but potentially with a smaller scale um does that change the economic thresholds i mean can you can is it do you think it's safe to generalize to say that you can generally get away with a lower grade on an oxide than you can on a sulfide providing there's enough scale um there's a lot of moving parts to that question but i'd say in general probably you can get away with a lower uh grade oxide project assuming that you get decent recoveries you know 65 70 percent recoveries assuming then you have a manageable Sugar ratio in your open pit, i.e., less than sort of five to one. Um, you know, assuming that you've got relatively good access to power, relatively good access. Assuming all of those things, yeah, you could, you can almost certainly say that you're going to have a lower wide grade. Um, although the complication is typically in flotation circuits, you tend to recover a lot more copper. Uh, so, you know, whereas it might get 65, 70% in, an, in a heat leak project. Uh, you might get 90 plus percent of the contained copper, 85, 90 percent in a uh, in a concentrate project. Um, but I think the real kicker is the on average, if you look at the industry, um, the average capital intensity, i.e., the total capital cost per ton of copper produced for a sulfide project versus an oxide project, is about two and a half, two and a half to one. So, <clears throat> all else being equal, you will see a significant capital benefit project and therefore something is what we describe as much more intensive and robust and almost certainly uh has a has a better chance of being a mine regardless of the and with a um lower capital cost per ton but possibly also a lower operating cost or an energy consumption is, is that hard to um generalize um, typically, no, I'd say typically the, you know, your big decent grade sulfide projects will have a lower, um, a lower unit cost per ton to remove just on account of the scale. Uh, 
you can have very competitive operating costs, but I think the big kicker with most sulfide projects, the really outstanding sulfide big kicker makes them work, if you will, is the byproduct credits they, they often have. Uh, so, you know, you start producing a couple hundred thousand ounces a year of gold, it very quickly reduces that unit cost to about a and in an oxide project, you can't recover the gold or the silver, although molly if there is, or um, so it's, it becomes a pure play on the copper. Well, you can do, but it involves a secondary leach, and um, you know there's there's ways and means to get around it. But in many of the oxide projects, uh, you see much lower levels of precious relative to the. Hayden, thank you so much. A, a real blast, a real trip around um, oxides and sulfides. Um, Let's leave it there for today. Um, thank you very much. Thanks, Melvin.